0: So last week we looked at how the gospel works on religion. Religion is that which we use to find our enoughness. So we can, all, we can each make something into our own religion. And we looked at how does the gospel speak to that. Today we're going to be looking at how does the gospel speak to friendship. So uh, our scripture today is from, comes from Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. And you can find it on page 786 in the Pew Bible. In 995 in the large print.
1: And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to uh, and when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their face, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. God.
0: This summer, Disney released the fourth Toy Story movie. Now, if you're familiar with the Toy Story series, you know that it's about uh, a mix-and-match collection of eccentric toys that go on an adventure together. Right There's Woody, the sheriff, who uh, loves Andy, his boy. There's Buzz Lightyear, the space commander, who goes into outer space. And there's a bunch of other toys, too. And the movies are all about their journeys and adventures together. Now, I think there's a reason why there's been four of these movies. And it's not just that Disney wants to make a lot of money. It's because these movies, when you really get down to it, are about one thing. Friendship. These movies are about friendship. So I think they appeal to us because friendship is an important part of our life. So we're going to be talking about how does the gospel work on friendship today? Now when I say friend, what do you think of? Do you think of how many Facebook friends you have? Maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand or more? When I say friend, do you think of the one or two close friends that you've had since childhood? Or if I say friend... Do you not really want to think about that because you've either lost a friend, maybe you're distant from a friend right now, or maybe you don't want to think about that because you wouldn't consider anyone your friend. But today we're going to talk about what friendship is. So before we jump into it, let's consider this passage that Bridget read for us uh, just as a whole. I think many of us who grew up in the church are familiar with this passage, We've heard it before. We know that this is a story of Jesus healing a paralytic. But let's, let's look at a climax of this story. After the men have brought their friend, the paralytic, to Jesus, we see that uh, Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees, and, or with the scribes, excuse me. And the scribes see what Jesus has done, but the scribes respond not how we think they might, but they respond with fumes coming out of their ears. Right, They're getting mad. And they say in their heart, this man is blaspheming. He is blaspheming them. He's blaspheming God. They bite their tongues. But that's what they're saying in their heads. And it's almost like Jesus could hear their thoughts. And he turns to them and says, why do you question these things in your heart? You know, my translation of that is, if you've got a problem with something, say it. And then Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic?" your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying any messianic pretender, anyone claiming to be God, anyone who comes and says they're the Christ, could say to someone, your sins are forgiven. There's no way to disprove that statement, at least not from our perspective. But, if any messianic claimer says to someone, rise, stand, and it's a paralytic, well, the truth of that's going to come out real quick. And then he goes on and he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then the man stood up, picked up his bed, and left. And then everyone was amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Well, why am I summarizing this story now? Isn't that what the sermon's for? And it's because I want to identify the main thrust of this passage. Of all the encounters that Jesus had that Mark could have recorded for us in his biography of Jesus, he included this one. So why do we think we needed to hear this story? And we see the reason in Jesus' words in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Mark wants to teach us that Jesus is the Son of Man, that Jesus is God come in the flesh. That's the... That's the main thrust of this. That's the main point of the whole biography of Jesus, to teach us what his identity is. Who is Jesus? And yet, I think there's something more here too. Because we all know, at least up here, that Jesus is the Son of God. Or at least we know that that's what we as a church claim, that Jesus is the Son of God. And yet, I wonder how often it stays up here and it doesn't sink down here. Sometimes we don't know what to do with that claim. Jesus is the Son of God, but so what? What does that mean for my daily life? What does that mean when I get together with my neighbors and my friends? What does that actually mean for what I do, for how I live? And that's what I want to look at today. So we're going to look at this passage from a different angle, from the angle of friendship. Every text is like a kaleidoscope where there's different vantage points we can take. I want to sit under this text and listen to what it has to say to us today, but I want to approach it with the question of friendship. Because if all Mark wanted to do was to show us that Jesus was the Son of God, why would he have had to include the friends bringing the paralytic to him? Why would Mark have included lowering, Mark, uh, lowering the paralytic through the roof? But he included those in our text today. So we're going to look at three points today. First, our need for friendship. Second, the nature of friendship. And third, the practice of friendship. That's why is it important What is it really, and how do we do it? So the need, the nature, and the practice. So first, the need. Why do we need friendship? It's a question I probably don't have to ask for most of us. Most of us are already pretty well aware that we need friends. The most obvious reason in our life for why we need friends is when we're going through a crisis. And I know that many of us here are going through crises in our own lives. Perhaps you've uh, gone into a period of loneliness, or depression, perhaps there's a uh, storm in your life that you're walking through, and a friend is someone to encourage you through that storm. And that's one reason why the paralytic in our story today needed friends, because he was completely helpless to help himself. There was nothing he could do except to depend on a little help from his friends. Others of us are experiencing a season of joy right now, but you need friends too, Because there's something about enjoying a delicious dessert or taking in a beautiful view where you don't quite fully enjoy it until you have a friend to share it with. Now, some of us are single and we might be feeling the pressure or the desire or both to be with someone. And yet friendship can be a source of companionship. This is particularly acute for those of us who might struggle with same-sex attraction and yet desire to live out a biblical sex ethic. Wesley Hill, a celibate and committed Christian with same-sex attraction, wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship. And in it, he makes the case that friendship is a good and godly love in its own right, just as worthy of attention, nurture, and respect as any other form of Christian affection. And I could keep going. We need friends if we're married or not married, have children or don't have children, or young or old. We all need friends to go through life. That might naturally lead to the question, well, Ben, what is a friend? What is a friend? So to consider how a friend might be unique from a brother, a sibling, a neighbor, a parent, let's look at Proverbs to see how Proverbs describes a friend. In Proverbs 17, 17, we read, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Now what this proverb is doing is, is comparing a friend versus a family member. And it recognizes that a brother will be there for a university because we know as family that we ought to care for one another. And yet you don't choose your family. So while you might care for your family members, you might only be there for their hardships. And and then after that, you might only hear from them on your birthday or on a holiday. And yet a friend loves it all the time. A friend will be there when you're going through that storm of loneliness or depression. And a friend will be there when you're just doing your thing. At all times. Now, we can have a brother also be a friend. But you notice how those rules can be different. And then we see in Proverbs 18, verse 24, it reads, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A friend sticks to you. You might say you're stuck at the hip to one another. A man has, might have his companions, his business partners, his acquaintances. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to fall into ruin. They're they're not necessarily going to be there for you in that crisis. But a friend is going to stick closer to you than blood. So friendship is something different from family or marriage or neighbors. Your family, spouse, and neighbors can be your friends, but there's something different. Unlike those, marriage, family, neighbors, friendship is unnecessary. It's not biologically or sociologically necessary. And C.S. Lewis expands on this when he wrote that it, that this love is the least natural of the loves. Unlike romantic love, it's not necessary for our conception. Unlike, fam, unlike family love, it's not necessary for our upbringing. And unlike neighborly love, it's not necessary for us to work or govern. As he says, it is unnecessary. It is arbitrary. A thing of choice. We're no way obliged to make any man a friend, and we have no claim that any man become ours. It is more nearly disinterested than any other love. And to summarize it in a word, it's free. Friendship is that unique relationship that we need, that we enter by choice. But it's there for us at all times. So we've seen that we all need friendship in good times and in bad times. And now we've seen how it's unique from other relationships. So, So now let's turn to our second point, which is the nature of friendship. The nature. What, what is friendship really? So at the end of the day, I would contend that there's two kinds of relationships. There's a consumer relationship and there's a covenantal relationship. A consumer relationship is based on what each of us get out of the relationship. So if we're friends and it's a consumer relationship, it's because you're getting something out of it, I'm getting something out of it, and as long as that's the case, we stick with it. The covenantal relationship is based upon the commitment to the relationship. So even when you stop getting anything out of it, you're still committed to that relationship. So let's consider a consumer relationship first. A consumer relationship is like how we relate to a store. So let's think of Hannaford uh, here in Camden. So I'm going to have a consumer relationship with Hannaford as long as I find their prices acceptable, or, or at least the best in the area, right? And as long as they're meeting my expectations, we're going to have that consumer relationship with one another. But if I feel like I'm not getting my needs met, I'm going to say, at least in the friendship, it might not have this power with first, but with a friend, I'm going to say, you need to adjust to me. In order for this relationship to continue, you need to adjust to me. And if you don't, then I'm out of here. I'm going to find a friend who's going to scratch my back. Now, it might sound like all consumer relationships or morally wrong. But I actually challenge you to consider, uh, consider that again. Think about most people who know you probably know you because you, you do something for them. Most people who know you just know you because they, they want something. Whether it's a, uh, a friend at work, whether it's a, a coworker, uh, whether it's a neighbor, you're, you're working together. And before you get mad at them or, or second guess that, think about the reason why you know most of the people you know. Most people we know, we just—it's we, how society gets along. It's how we operate. That's how it's how life works. And yet, there's two there's two uh, dangers that we're going to see come from consumer relationships. So before we get there, let's look at the text. What relationship in the text today do you think would be a consumer relationship? I think it's probably. The scribes. The scribes with Jesus. Let's consider why they're there. Well, first of all, let's look at why they're not there. I think they're not there uh, because they know who Jesus is. As we, as we saw in our summary of the text, they don't know who Jesus is. That's why they get so mad when they hear Jesus blaspheming, because they don't know that he truly is God come in the flesh. So they're not there because they understand who Jesus is. So then we might ask, well, why are they there? So let's look at uh, verses 1 to 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. I think we see at least three things in this passage that brought the scribes to Jesus. The first one is that there were reports going around Galilee of Jesus. I mean, it was spreading all over Israel, news of his healings, his exorcisms, And the scribes caught wind. So they probably wanted to go to satisfy their own curiosity. They wanted to see, what is this business all about? Who is this guy? Second, the house was completely full. What does that tell us? That people were flocking from all over to see Jesus. So as a religious teacher, the uh, the scribes saw him as maybe someone to network with. This guy is getting pretty popular, and if I can get in on on, his circle, then maybe my own scribal school would take off. And third, we see that Jesus was preaching the word. You know, when I was at seminary and a well-known professor or author came to campus, I always made an effort to go because I thought they probably have something worth hearing. But I didn't go because I wanted to become best friends. At least not all the time. Sometimes I did. But most of the time, I didn't go because I wanted to leave as a close friend. So the scribes, likewise, went because they wanted to get a taste of what Jesus was teaching. So... Now that we've seen see this in the passage, when does a consumer relationship become a problem? When does a consumer relationship become a problem? Because it's something that's part of our lives, and yet there's a danger to it. I think there's at least two ways. And the first is when we see people as just uh, ways to get things done. So whether it's a coworker, coworker, professor, student, boss, employee relationship if we begin to think that this person is only a way of getting somewhere, I think we're in danger. I think that's why sometimes we end up yelling at the customer service representative on the phone because your worth is only as my needs are being met. Right? So that's why the cashier at the store we can get angry at, even though the cashier is nothing they can do to solve our problem. But we begin to see that person merely as a way of getting something done rather than having dignity in their own right. That's the first way. And the second way so we treat our friends this way, when we treat our friendship as a consumer-based relationship. I mean, Let's say the scribes wanted to become friends with Jesus after getting there. If, if they operated based on, it's only what you're giving me, then they're not going to be able to have a true friendship. And yet before we think, well, I'd never do that, I'm waiting for that covenantal one you mentioned earlier, that's, that's me. I, I want you to consider how uh, we might actually end up doing this in our own friendships. I mean, think about the friend who calls you and says, I'm getting into uh, the airport, my flight's been delayed, I won't get there till 11 p.m. Can you come pick me up? And we, we calculate the time it takes to get to the airport, and uh, by the time I get back, I'll, it'll be after midnight before I get into bed. Uh, that's a little bit too late for me. Like, my need for sleep is overriding my willingness to help you. Or think of another example. What if you had tickets to a ball game, And you've been waiting for this for a long time. This is going to be a great game, an awesome game. And yet, that day, a friend begins to go through something really hard. And you know that you could be an encouragement to that friend right now, right after that's gone down. Would you be willing to consider going there? Now, I'm not saying there's a one-case-fits-all in these circumstances, but we begin to see patterns. Is our friendship operating based off of, I'll be there for you as long as it's not infringing on what I want or I'll be there for you no matter what. And that's the second danger. It was a 20th century Russian theologian Pavel Florensky who warned, there are many temptations to turn away from a friend, to remain alone or to start new relationships. But a person who has broken off one friendship will break off another and a third because he has replaced the way of assesses, which is costly, self-sacrificial love, with a desire for comfort. And he says, instead of this consumer relationship, what we need is a friend who we can pledge to. So he wrote, the greatest love is realizable only in relation to friends, not in relation to all people in general. What he's saying is that the, the way that we actually demonstrate love isn't just some generic love for all people that maybe leads me to donate money to a charity. That's, that's a good thing. But that's not the greatest form of love. The greatest form of love is when we actually bind ourselves, pledge ourselves, covenant ourselves to a friend. So now let's turn to our other kind of friendship, a covenant. So the second type of relationship is a covenant. Now, covenant is a word that we see in the Bible a lot, especially in the Old Testament. And you might might ask me, then, that's a really archaic word. Can you please give me a modern version of that word? To which I would say, no. There is no other word I can think of that captures the same connotation as a covenant. Because a covenant is going to be different from every other form of relationship. As one pastor put it, a covenant creates a relationship far more loving and intimate than a mere legal relationship. So it's not just this agreed-upon contract, it's more than that, but it's far more binding and enduring than a merely emotional relationship. You see how like each of those kind of a weakness, a contract can seem cold, and an emotional re- relationship can seem flippant, but a covenant takes both and puts them together. The covenant friendship is the opposite of a consumer relationship. Remember, with Hennepers, I'm going to say, you have to adjust to me, and if the quality of your avocados, or the price of your kale changes, then I'm going somewhere else. At least if, if there's a market somewhere else. I'm going to go there to get my, meat, my needs met. And that's how a consumer relationship works. But a covenant friendship flips that. And it says, I pledged myself to you. So I'm going to adjust to you instead of asking you to, to adjust for me. Now consider the difference between these two phrases. You're mine because I love you. And then I love you because you're mine. You're mine because I love you. And I love you because you're mine. A consumer relationship says you're mine because I love you. As long as I have these feelings towards you, as long as you're doing something that's lovable, you're mine. But the other way says because you're mine, that does not change. I will love you. I love you because you're mine. Because you belong to me, I will love you. And that is a covenant friendship. And we see this uh, some places in the Bible where the the, the narrator puts a spotlight on the friendship and probably the best known one that many of you are already thinking about is in first samuel 18 of david and jonathan and this is what it says as soon as he had finished speaking to saul the soul of jonathan was knit to the soul of david and jonathan loved him as his own soul and saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house then jonathan made a covenant with david because he loved him as his own soul And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. When they met shortly after David conquered Goliath, Jonathan and David had an instant connection. They immediately recognized each other as deep friends. And some of the language that they used to describe their friendship can actually be shocking to us today because it uses some marital imagery of, of love and covenant. But it's because... We've actually lost the category of friendship that could use those. A deep covenantal friendship where you're you're pledging yourselves to one another. You begin to develop a deep love for each other because of your friendship with one another. Now, who in our passage today do you see demonstrating a covenantal friendship? In our passage today, who's demonstrating the covenantal friendship? I think it's the four men. All we know about these four men, we don't have their backstory, all we know about them is the action that they take to carry their paralytic friend from wherever they are all the way to Jesus. That's really all we know about them. Now, having heard of Jesus, they found a source of hope for their friend. They, they, they knew the stories of Jesus going around and healing people. Finally, their paralytic friend who's never been able to walk, never been able to jump for joy, can be taken to Jesus to experience healing. Now, what they don't do, because otherwise this this story wouldn't exist, is say, well, I'm too busy caring for my auction. I'm too busy caring for my vineyard or my shop. I, I can't go to all that trouble. That's not what they do. They pick up Jesus, and they take the long journey, and by the end of the journey, they're covered in sweat, and they're sore from carrying a bed with their friends to get them to Jesus. And then when they arrive, what do they find? But the house is mobbed. Now picture you've taken your young child to the mall during Christmas time and Santa has the whole neighborhood in line already. Are you going to wait around to to go through the line? Well, only if you're really committed to that. Otherwise, you might just leave. And then multiply that because this house is mobbed and they can't even get inside. right? If they wanted an easy out, like, hey, man, I tried, I did my best, but now I have to give up. They had an out, but they didn't take it. Most of us might have. But look at verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above them. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which a paralytic lay. These men dug through the roof. Like, the roof in that day would have been hardened mud with sticks. And they dug through that. Not just a, a little hole to see, a giant hole to lower their friends. Like, this is, this is not just a polite acquiescence to a request. This is a desperate act of vandalism to get their friend to Jesus. I mean, how many of us would be willing to do that to get our friend to Jesus? These friends are working as if their own life depended on it. That's friendship. Identifying their friend's needs as their own, greater than their own. They didn't leave the paralytic friend when you can no longer do anything for them, like a consumer friendship. They stuck with them. They adjusted for their friend. Do you see how incredible a covenantal friendship can be? See how beautiful a true covenantal relationship with another person can be? You know, when you're in a consumer friendship, by way of comparison, when you're in a consumer relationship, you're actually the least free. It might seem like you're keeping your options open because I haven't committed to this person, I mean, I think this is often why people uh, choose to live together instead of getting married, because they think that that is actually keeping me the most free. I want my options, because we value freedom in our culture. But actually, a consumer relationship is the least free, and this is why. Because when you're in a consumer relationship, you're not free to be yourself. The entire relationship is one of acting, of putting on a show, putting up a facade, so that the other person is getting met in their needs by you. Is acting in such a way that they won't ever leave you. you know, Does so-and-so think I'm cool? Does so-and-so think I'm funny? I texted this, my, my friend, but they didn't get back to me. Why are they not texting me back? Or I uploaded that photo and they haven't liked it. Why have they not liked my photo? And I think this is what leads to peer pressure, whether it's smoking or you know, uh, drinking, whatever, whatever it is. Peer pressure comes when we convert ourselves to the expectations of others. So a consumer relationship is actually the least free. And in comparison to that, we see just how beautiful a covenantal friendship can be. Because in a covenant friendship, I have a place where I can be myself. I know that I can be myself, warts and all, because the other person has agreed to to put the relationship before our own needs. I can show my insecurities. I can take down that facade. I can open up about what's really happening in my life because I know that my friend will stand by me. That... It's the beauty of a covenantal relationship. Now, a covenantal friendship is also very difficult. It might be very alluring, but it's also very difficult. It means that we put the need of our friend before our own. And sometimes this looks like running into danger. And there's a story from one of my favorite books, The Lord of the Rings, that really puts this into a a crystallized uh, image. And if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, then you know that it's a story of Frodo the Hobbit who goes on a quest with a group of companions in order to destroy a magical ring that the Dark Lord is going to try and recover to destroy Middle Earth. Now, you don't have to like fantasy and dragons and orcs to appreciate what this story is trying to convey. Because like Toy Story, a major theme in Lord of the Rings is friendship. Now, a lot of people actually contend that Frodo, who's the protagonist, not actually the main character of the book, and I would tend to agree. We would actually say that his friend Sam is the, main, is the main character, because Frodo could never have taken that ring to Mount Doom if his friend Sam hadn't been there with him. And there's this gripping moment near the end of the third book when the two of them have gone off on their own, and they're almost to their final destination. And because of the ring, which is like a personified sin in the book, Frodo has actually turned on Sam. He's actually violated, in some ways, their friendship. But how does Sam react? Sam doesn't say, well, okay, I came all this way, you're going to treat me like that, I'm going home. Like Good luck, this is up to you now. No, because he has a covenantal friendship with Frodo. And there's this moment, near the end, when Sam is on the border of Mordor, which is just this evil land full of darkness and and evil things, and he's right at the border, and he has to decide what, what he's going to do. And this is what Tolkien writes in his book. His, Sam's, love for Frodo, his love for Frodo rose above all other thoughts and forgetting his peril, he cried aloud, I'm coming, Mr. Frodo. You know, as much as I love these books, I think this story is actually pointing to a greater story. Now that's an example of, that we probably would never face in our own lives, of running into danger for a friend. Let me give you a more day-to-day example of running into danger for a friend. Having the courage to call a friend out. Having the courage to call a friend out on some, something wrong, something sinful they're doing. Proverbs 27, 5-6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In a covenant friendship, you can actually speak the truth to one another. The, the, the author of this Proverbs compare open rebuke to the wounds of a friend. You can actually call a friend out because you have that covenantal friendship that can endure that. A consumer relationship could never endure actually calling a friend out on what they're doing. And then Proverbs twenty nine five says, a man who flatters his neighbor spes, spreads a net for his feet. You know, there, we might, it might seem like calling out a friend when they're in the wrong is actually a, a mean thing, not a loving thing. But what this Proverbs tells us is that when you don't speak the truth to a friend, it's like spreading a net for their feet. Because if they don't actually have the ability to see themselves as they are in whatever they're doing, well, you've practically been the one yourself to lay the, the trap for them. Because you could have helped to remove it by revealing it to them. Actually, I think, it's, I think the reason why we don't speak the truth is not because we love them too much. I think it's because we love ourselves too much. And we don't want to endure the pain in the friendship of calling someone out. Okay, so we've began to scratch the surface of the nature of friendship, a covenantal relationship. And we've seen how beautiful and alluring, but how difficult it can be to, to do this. So we, we want to ask, where does the power to be a friend like this come from? How can we actually practice this? So our third point is the practice of friendship And our passage begins to answer the question for us. How do we live the friendship the four men in this story demonstrated to their friend, to the paralytic? How do do we live that out? When verse 5, Mark says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, 'Son, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, who can discern the thoughts and motives of the heart, sees that their actions are out of faith. For this person. So their friendship is being fueled by faith. That's the gas in the tank for their friendship. And what's their faith in? Their faith is in who Jesus is. Because they know that Jesus is able to heal, both physically and spiritually, the fact that he's paralyzed and, the, and his sin. They know that Jesus is the one who can forgive sin. Now we know that from scripture that God can't just sweep sin under the rug. We know that God is both merciful to forgive sin, but God is also just to punish sin. So that begs the question if they know Jesus is the one who can forgive his sins, how can Jesus forgive this man's sins without just sweeping them under the rug? How can he be both the just and the justifier, as Romans 3 says? Well, we, we begin to see the rest of the answer when we get to the end of Jesus' ministry. During Jesus' Last Supper, Jesus explains to his disciples what he's about to do. and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give it to you these things I command so that you will love one another Jesus shows how the gospel is a story of friendship he takes the gospel story and he puts he he views it through the lens of friendship he says basically that When God created Adam and Eve and God created people, he created them for friendship with himself. But then we have broken that friendship because when our needs weren't being met, as you can see with Adam and Eve, they turned to get them met somewhere else. And we do the same thing today. But God didn't have a consumer friendship with us like he needed anything from us. God had a covenantal friendship with us, which is why from Genesis to Revelation we read of God creating covenants with his people saying, I will be there for you. I will love you. And here, near the end, you see Jesus saying, I now call you friends because of what I'm about to do, because I will lay down my life for you. You know, I said Tolkien was looking to a greater story. This is the story Tolkien was looking to. Take Sam's words and imagine Jesus saying them, His love for his people rose above all other thoughts. And forgetting his peril, he cried aloud, I'm coming. And with open arms, Jesus ran to the cross to die for us so that we could be friends with Jesus, so that he could keep his covenantal friendship with us. And that's how he finishes the story. And we know how it ends, because we can look to Revelation. And in Revelation, uh, as, as we'll see, it says that, I heard a loud voice from the throne. And we can jump ahead to this. Um, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from his eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All other friendships in this life will end, whether through death or remove, at least for a time. But there's one friendship that will never end. Because there's one person who can actually sing the lyrics from that famous song in Toy Story. There's one person, and that's Christ. He can sing, and as the years go by, our friendship will never die. You're going to see it's our destiny, that you've got a friend in me. Because the gospel is the ultimate story of friendship. Where does the power come from to be the covenantal friend that we need to be, that we ought to be, that we want to be? It comes from seeing that Christ has befriended us by laying down his life for us. As we sang earlier, it's not by the power of our faith, but by the power of our Savior. Because those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious, like friends, in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. When we love Christ for what he has done for us, that then gives us the love that we need to have for others. And actually, if you love your friend more than you love Jesus, you're actually going to squash that person. Because if we love uh, our earthy friend more than we love Jesus, then that means we're going to look to that friend ultimately as the one who meets our needs, which no person can do. But when we look to Christ to meet our, our needs, to be our friend in our loneliness, to be our friend in in our depression, then we are able to love others and be able to have a give-and-take friendship with them because Christ is the one meeting our needs. So if you know that Jesus is your friend, it liberates you to be the friend that you can be. So the clear message today is look to Jesus to be the friend that you need so that you can then be the friend to others, to, to others. And let me give you two quick application points. One, pursue friendships. Take a risk. You might not think you even have any friends today, and that's okay, but pursue friendship, whether that's reconciling with a friend, finding a new friend. But Christ has honored friendship by calling us his friends. And second, think of a friend that you can bring to Jesus I mean, isn't that the most friendly thing we see happening in this passage today? That these friends have brought the paralytic to Jesus. By doing so, the paralytic's sins have been forgiven. And isn't that what we desire for, for our friends who don't know Christ? That they would come to know Christ, like we know Christ, to see how he has died to be their friend as well. And if we truly love this person, the most loving thing we can do is to bring them to Christ. So in conclusion... Christ has died in order to befriend you. Look to his friendship for the power to befriend others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much that you love us as a covenantal friend, so that even when we sin, which we will, you stay with us. We thank you that you've loved us. We thank you that you've befriended us. And we ask that you give us the power to befriend others as you have befriended us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.